Supreme Court decision that came down on Friday uh, that was official, the Dobbs decision. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of brief comments. Obviously, lots could be said, and lots will be said, and already has been said. Um, and I don't pretend to have any sort of definitive response to it, but just a couple of quick things. Um, one passage uh, I thought summarized our response to this quite well, uh, Proverbs 21 and verse 15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Um, I thought that was pretty accurate. So. I don't know all the implications of what this is going to mean, right? We're in the early days of, of this happening and being official, and one of the things that our culture does not do very well is critical thinking and processing through things and responding appropriately after we've thought through it. So that's one thing we don't wanna do is respond so quickly, um, but I keep coming back to two main things that I think are very clear and appropriate for Christians. First, there should be joy in your heart over this. Um, obviously, this does not eliminate all abortions in our country. Um, that's still an ongoing thing, but this should significantly change the landscape regarding that. Anytime, biblically speaking, that justice is done, according to the Bible's definition of justice, and I think this fits that, there should be joy in our hearts. A response of joy should be there. Um, I was, a, a few weeks ago, I was talking with Bethany and just saying, this is the defining Supreme Court case in my life growing up. Um, you know, I was born about eight years after this thing came down, and it, that was all you ever heard about, and rightfully so from a Christian standpoint. And so this is the defining injustice in our country for almost 50 years, and it was, it was overturned, and that's a wonderful thing. God has brought that about for his purposes and his timing and for his reasons, and so joy should be an appropriate response for us. Um, joy is not the same thing as mockery or spite for those who disagree. It's not a time to get your jabs in and hit your memes, your meme game hard. It's a time to rejoice in what God has done. So delight in his goodness and the gifts that he has given in this moment. Second thing I will say is this points us and reminds us once again of the value of every human life. It's not something that we need to take for granted. God has made us in his image. We are all image bearers. Every human being is. And so every human life is worthy of dignity, of respect, and of, of importance. Now, of course, the principle of valuing human life extends well beyond abortion, but this issue has been the flashpoint in our national discussion surrounding human life and the value of human life and the dignity of human life for 50 years. And so this is a big deal. This doesn't end our witness concerning the importance of human life. Uh, in some ways, it probably means we'll have to be more clear and more intentional regarding the value and dignity of human life at every age and every size. But it is, it is a reminder to us of the importance of every human life. We have to continue to speak on this and speak clearly and speak accurately from a Christian standpoint and ground our arguments in how God has designed the world to work. I would call that natural law. And I would say we have to ground our arguments in Scripture and in what the Bible has to say about this. We live in a culture of violence and death. And so a Christian responds by valuing human life. 
So, rejoice. Take some time to rejoice and delight in this. Pray. And then let's continue as a church to value life and love our neighbor and out of love for God, continue to do that. So just a couple of quick thoughts on that. I'm sure I read several articles last night and actually started reading the opinion. Um, So take some time, process through this, think through this, and I'm sure there'll be opportunities moving forward as a church to, uh, to enter into this in some way in the future. All right? Well, John chapter 8 is where we're going to be today, getting back into our study of John. John's Gospel, thank you to Trevor for preaching. I thought he did an excellent job last week. It was very clear and helpful for us. Back into John today. You see the title on the screen is Whose Family? Since we'll be talking about family today as a topic, I thought that I would begin by quoting an author who really understands family dynamics and gets to the heart of family. His name is Bill Watterson. And if you didn't know who he is, he is the creator of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. So, without further ado, here you go. You've been hitting rocks in the house. Why on earth would you do something like that? Poor genetic material? Bad guess. The point is, I love Calvin and Hobbes. Our family does. So they always come to mind and seem to apply in certain situations. But the point is, your family background is incredibly important. It's formative for you. Certainly, the genetic part of that, as Calvin highlights here or tries to highlight, that's important as well the nature part of your family background, but the nurture part of your family background is significant and forms you as well. There are certain practices and expectations and experiences that will mold our four kids and how they enter into adulthood in the future, whether that's for good or whether that's for bad, and it is no doubt a mixture of both of those in any family culture, but Regardless, you are the product of your family background, whatever that looks like. It has shaped you and formed you into who you are and who you will become. Now, the Gospel of John is not shy about connecting our eternal destination to what spiritual family we belong to. You are who your spiritual family is. And beyond just your eternal destination, your spiritual family forms you into how you act and move through life. Listen to John 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born into his family, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Over and over again in John's gospel, Jesus refers to God as his father, And then as he refers to him as his father and himself as the son, he invites us into that familial relationship. John 17 goes over that. We're invited in to that love relationship, that family relationship as children of God, the love between the father and the son through the spirit. In fact, in John 14, Jesus specifically says he's not going to leave us as orphans, even though he goes away. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And then here's the promise, the ultimate promise of that family relationship. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. 
The connection and the closeness and the family identity is secure in Christ. And so in our passage for today, the issue of family identity is front and center. I mean, that, that question is really the, that I put for the title is really the question of the passage. Whose family do you belong to? There are two very clear options that are given in this text. You can be the child of God or you can be the child of the devil. And that sounds kind of, kind of stark. And that's because it is kind of stark. And those are the two options that we have. There is no third way or in-between option. And you're going to see the, the clear contrast between those two family identities and then the way those family identities work themselves out in lives, in the way you live and the, what you love every day. And you're going to see that as Jesus engages and has a conversation with a group of Jews who claim to believe in him. In fact, Scripture says that they come to believe in him. They claim to want to be his followers, and then he begins to engage them and really puts on display that they aren't actually a part of the family of God. They're still very much shaped and very much influenced by the family identity they were born into, followers and children of the devil. So, John 8, verses 30 to 59, three qualities that point to your spiritual family identity. Three qualities that point to your spiritual family identity. The first one of these is that you, spiritually speaking, you act like your family. Verses 30 to 41, first part of verse 41. Now, since Trevor preached last week, I want to go back a little bit and try to bring you up to speed on where we're at and how this passage fits into what has come before it. We're still on that one day, right? The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is still in the temple and he's still teaching and interacting with people there. Look back probably just across the page in your Bible to John 7 verses, verse 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So on that last day, Jesus proclaims that you can come to him and he will give you living water, which ultimately is the Holy Spirit that leads to eternal life. And so he does that on the last day. And then if you look forward to chapter 8 and verse 12, look there. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Both of those images of, of water in the wilderness provided for you and of light to guide you, both of those images tied Jesus back to the Old Testament and to the Exodus. God provided water for the Israelites in the wilderness. God provided light through the pillar of light, fire at night, and of cloud in the day. And Jesus is picking up on those images and the events that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's saying... I am the hope and the expectation of, of those in the Old Testament. God brought his salvation in this way in the Old Testament, and it pointed forward to an even greater and fuller experience of salvation, which comes through me now. So that's what he's doing here. Now, those statements that he made led to an argument with the religious leaders at the end of chapter, or at the beginning of chapter 8, verses 12 through 29. 
And as he has that argument with the religious leaders, there's a crowd of people who are listening to him engage and listening to him talk about his relationship with his father. And we get to verse 30, and look what it says there regarding those people. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, our immediate reaction to this is to rejoice, right? That's a wonderful thing. They heard him, and they believed in him. But we've already seen in John's gospel that the initial response of faith or claim of faith, of interest in Jesus, often does not translate to lasting faith, to genuine and saving faith. Once again, this plays itself out in this passage, as you will see. But initially, when they proclaim that they have faith, when they say they believe in him, Jesus responds and tells them how they can be sure that that it is true faith. Look at 31, verses 31 and 32. So, in light of the fact that many believed, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What makes one a true disciple of Jesus? And this is such an important question for you and for me as well. What makes one a true follower of Christ and not just a flash-in-the-pan believer? Someone who gets really excited for a little while and then fades away. Jesus points out in verse 31 that true followers of him will continue to remain, abide is the translation that we have in the ESV here. They will abide in his word and his teaching. They will continue in it. So many people hear the claims of Jesus. They hear what he says. They hear the teaching of his word. They think it sounds nice. There's an interest in it. There's maybe a a concern for the church, an involvement in the church, but then they move on from it. They move on from his teaching. Even in their personal lives, they may still outwardly attend church, but in their personal lives, they've moved on from letting the word of God shape and form them. They don't dwell in it. They don't obey it. They don't keep it. They go back to their predetermined way of life. They go up a ramp and then slide back down onto the normal plane of everyday life that they've always had. They don't continue on the new path that has been carved out by Christ. To abide in Jesus' word or his teaching is something like sticking to a workout plan. Let's say you want to get healthy. You want to lose some weight, so you decide that you're going to run or you're going to work out, and you really haven't been exercising. How does that happen? Well, you you get a plan in order, and you start maybe for a couple days, and it gets hard, and you want to quit, and you want to go buy a dozen donuts and plop on the couch and just make yourself happy because your body's starting to hurt. But abiding in the workout plan means you continue day after day and week after week to obey the the plan, to abide by the plan, to continue in it, to look at it, and to follow through on it. And over time, after several weeks, results begin to happen. What are the results of abiding in Christ? Look at verse 32. And you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. This is what Jesus promises if you abide in his teaching. He's not just saying, look, gut it out for all of your life. He's saying, look, abide in my teaching. Stick to it. Remain in my word. Commit yourself to my claims and to my teaching. And if you will do that, there will be results in your life. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, what does he mean by being set free? He's going to explain that in just a minute here. But look at verse 33 and how the people respond to his words about freedom. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're obviously offended that Jesus would insinuate that they are enslaved. Now, I think they actually, to some extent, understand that he's talking about spiritual slavery here. And the reason I think that is because they immediately go to their being offspring of Abraham, to Abraham as their, their physical father. And so they're claiming to have all the benefits of being a child of Abraham here. And they're basing that on their physical connection to him, but thinking in terms of the spiritual benefits of that. They're free as his children. And so what this means for them is because they're physical descendants of Abraham, they think they are spiritually okay. They're good to go. They're not enslaved to anyone. Jesus comes back and he identifies the real issue here. And the real issue is one of sin and not their physical family connection. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The freedom that Jesus is talking about here, that he promises if you abide in his word and remain in his teaching, is freedom from sin. It's a change of loyalty and of family identity, and that change brings about freedom. Now this goes against everything that our culture believes about freedom. The way, goes against everything, all the ways that our culture defines freedom. To most people today, freedom is the complete absence of restraint. I can follow my desires wherever they may lead me. That, to most people, is freedom. And it's the government and other people taking off any restraints so that I can do what I want. Now, the problem with this, according to Jesus, is that our desires actually enslave us to sin. We become slaves. We become prisoners. And more and more so as we practice sin. The handcuffs get tighter and tighter when we pursue sin apart from Christ. And the only way to true freedom is to know the truth. And the truth tells us who we are, how we were created, tells us to whom we are accountable, the reality that there is a creator God and we are accountable to him as his creation. True freedom through the truth leads us to live according to the grain of the universe. We live with the way God has created things. And there's a certain amount of flourishing that happens when we live that way. 
And here's where we get to the issue of our family identity and our first quality. You act like your family. So Jesus has set the stage here by talking about sin and practicing sin and true freedom. And spiritually speaking, you are either a slave to sin as you practice it, and you are outside the family of God, defined by your desires and by your sin, or you are a child of God, and the Son of God has brought you into his family and has set you free from slavery. Look at verses 35 and 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here's the difference. If you're a son of God, you abide in his word and remain in the house. If you're not, you're a slave to sin and are on the outside. And the people that Jesus is talking to here, they very much demonstrate that even though they claim to believe in Christ, in their hearts and in their functional lives and their perspectives, they're very much still practicing sin and enslaved to sin. Look at verses 37 and 38. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Notice that last phrase. You do what you have heard from your father. They're just acting out their family identity. It's the most natural thing in the world for them. And what's amazing about that is they don't even realize it. They don't know. They're unaware of their family identity and how it's playing itself out in their lives. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. What is the key thing that the Bible says about Abraham? He trusted in God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the work of Abraham and they're hardly believing in Jesus. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me. Instead of trusting in Jesus, a man, verse 40, who has told you the truth that I heard from God, they're trying to kill him. This is not what Abraham did. Not at all. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham had messengers from God come to him. And what did he do? He fed them. He listened to them. He treated them with hospitality. That's hardly what these people are doing with the ultimate messenger from God, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they doing? They're trying to kill him. Look at verse 41, the first part of this. You are doing the works your father did. Listen, the consistent message of the New Testament is that Children of God will begin to look like God by their actions, and those outside his family will continue to display the actions of their family identity. This is how this works. 1 John. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Not perfectly, not without blemish or flaw, 
But when we sin, we confess our sins and we pursue keeping his commandments because we know him and we love him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so our actions reflect our family identity, but it's not just your outward actions. You love what your family loves. Spiritually speaking, you love what your family loves. Now, the Jews have tried to argue that they're children of Abraham here. Now they up up the ante a little bit. They take it up another level. Instead of Abraham now, they're going to claim God as their father. Look at the rest of verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. This may be a shot at Jesus and the circumstances surrounding his birth and his mother's virgin conception. Maybe that. But look what they say after this. We have one father, even God. Jesus says this, their claim here, fundamentally cannot be the case because they don't love the same things that God loves. And first on the list of things that God the Father loves is his son. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. There are many people, I think even today, who claim to believe in a God, maybe even the God of the Bible. They like the way he sounds in some ways. They they claim to believe in a God that resembles the God of the Bible. But at the end of the day, they reject Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And when that happens, that puts you outside the family of God. Interested in God, but not in Jesus, you're not interested in God. That's how this works. It doesn't make sense for you to come over to my house and insist that we are friends and then to inform my son, one of my two sons, that you would like to kill them. It's not how this works. Jesus was there in their presence among the Jews because the Father had sent him and the Father loved him. The book of John tells us over and over again about the close relationship between the Father and the Son, that Jesus reveals the Father to us. You cannot love one and hate the other. To be a part of God's family is to love what God loves. Why can't the Jews grasp this? This is fascinating. Why can't they get this? Because their loves and their desires are tragically twisted and bent out of shape. They're skewed. They're broken. They're wrong. They can't love what God loves. Why? Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They're not able to come to God and love what God loves because their hearts are darkened. They haven't been born again. They don't have new life. Their family identity has not changed. We know their family identity hasn't changed because of what Jesus says in verse 44. He's been hinting at this all along, and now he gets really clear and makes it explicit. Look at 44. You are of your father, the devil. 
I'm sure that went over well. And your will is to do your father's desires. You can see it right there. Their will, their desires are to do their father's desires. And again, it's amazing to me that they don't even realize this. Look at how his desires are described. The rest of verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice here that Jesus says that Satan has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. What does that mean? What's he getting at? Well, he's getting back to the Garden of Eden, and he's getting back to Genesis chapter 3. And Satan shows up in the garden. Why? To deceive and to kill, to murder. That was his ambition with Adam and Eve. He wants to kill. How does he kill? He kills through his lies. He gets you to believe that this will bring you joy and happiness, and this is the path to the good life, and you just should express your desires however you want to, and you should kill your baby, whatever it may be. He points you down that road, and it brings death. He lies in order to bring death. Let me remind you of his lies again. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. His whole strategy here is to question God's word and to cast doubt on God's character, on his goodness, through his lies. Satan never, ever tells you the truth. Sin never tells you the truth. It always deceives. It is built on lies. The devil loves to kill and to lie, and he does that because that's who he is from the inside out. And in verse 45, Jesus makes the point that these Jews are acting like Satan by listening to lies and rejecting the truth. Look at 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. They're rejecting the truth and they won't believe Jesus because he's speaking the truth. It's like they're allergic to the truth. They can't handle it. They don't want it. They love their darkness. They love their lies. They bought into them to the point where they can't even accept the truth. This passage, I think, is helpful. Titus 1. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They can't think straight, correctly, and they can't make moral judgments correctly either because all of it is built on lies and they have a twisted mind and twisted heart because they are of their father, the devil. Now here's what's crazy about this, right? Most of us believe that we are very rational people. So I'm talking about loves, your love, your desires. Most of us believe we're at the core. I am a rational person. If you will give me the facts of the situation, I accept the 
the reality of it based on the facts. That's what I do. Everyone else goes by emotions and desire, but not me. I am rational to the core. And in reality, it's a much different situation for all of us, every one of you. We are all driven by our loves and our desires. They control us. The key is to have the right set of loves and desires. Here's what often happens. We want what we want, and we come up with reasons to justify why we want it and why we should have it. It actually works the opposite. We think that our minds control. Uh Uh-uh. It goes the opposite way. Your loves, your desires, and your affections control what you think so often. There's one author named Jonathan Haidt, and he uses to talk about the relationship between your thinking brain and your heart, your desires, he uses this image of an elephant and a rider, okay? I've actually seen some, I've ridden an elephant on one of my trips to Nepal, and there was a guy sitting on the neck of the elephant, and the guy had this little stick in his hand that was supposed to guide and control the elephant. And at night, when you're walking to dinner near your hotel, these guys are riding these elephants through the street, getting them back to where they keep them for the night. It's an amazing thing to watch. But his point is, you're Your desires are the elephant. Your loves are the elephant. And your rational mind is the rider. The rider can maybe exercise some influence, but if the elephant wants to go this way, the elephant's going to go this way. And what ends up happening is the rider will often go, oh, okay, that's fine. Let's go this way and try to justify what you really want. And that's what happens for all of us. We tend to act and live out of our loves and desires. And we need to figure out where those those desires are coming from. Look at the question Jesus asks in verse 46. This gets to the heart of it. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Why aren't they believing the truth? It's rational. It's right in front of them. Here's why. Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The bottom line is that if your loves have been changed by being born again through the work of the Holy Spirit, you have a new set of affections and desires. You are a child of God and a part of his family, and now your desires are aimed in the right direction. But these people here, and so many in our world today, and maybe some sitting here, cannot see the truth of the glory of Christ And they they cannot see it, and they won't rejoice in it. It's not in their nature. It's like an alligator trying to fly. They just can't do it. That brings us to our last part of this, our third quality. You act like your family, you love what your family loves, and then finally you honor the family head. This is the last quality that points to your spiritual family identity. Verses 48 to 59. So Jesus has obviously been speaking the truth here, but the Jews do not appreciate it at all. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This just struck me, reminds me of like every bit of discourse in our country today, right? You can't answer someone, you can't defend the truth, and so you just say something completely insane and crazy and attack them personally. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They didn't like them, and so this is an accusation against Jesus and his family, an attack on them. 
But then they go even further than that and they accuse him of being in league with Satan and having a demon. Jesus answers them, gets back to the main issue here. And the main issue is whether or not they see him for who he is and whether or not they honor and glorify God. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. The real issue is whether they, like the father, honor the son or whether they don't. And here they're clearly dishonoring the son. Look at verse 50. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. By dishonoring Jesus, they dishonor the Father, and they demonstrate who their family allegiance is to. Now, what's amazing about this is you have people who are accusing Jesus of of being in league with the devil here, And yet, he goes back and reminds them of the fundamental reason for why he came. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Despite the hardness of heart of the people he's speaking to, despite their rejection of him, this is exactly why he came. To speak the truth, to offer his life as a sacrifice, Despite their continued anger at him and their rejection of him, he never stops offering them the chance to enter into God's family. It's amazing. He's come into the world to bring salvation. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. But here's the thing. He's not a pandering savior. He doesn't say, whatever I can do to get you to come. You have to respond to his offer on his terms and not yours. And that's what he says in verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, right? It's there, the offer's there, but it has to be on his terms in humble repentance and recognition of our sin. We submit to his word and his calling. Now, they respond here in a very literalistic manner, which is what we've seen throughout John's gospel. Look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. And then this is an amazing thing that Jesus says to them. Your father, Abraham, bringing the whole conversation together. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What is he talking about here? Obviously, Abraham died thousands of years earlier. What he means is Abraham knew the promise in Genesis 3 that a seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. Abraham knew the promise to him that a descendant of him would, of his would come and would bring blessing to all of the nations. Abraham had those promises and those covenants confirmed over and over again with him. He knew the promises of God and he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, that God would do what he said he would do. He 
looked ahead, saw the time by faith that this would happen, and rejoiced that God was going to make it happen. So Jesus is here saying, I am the fulfillment of Genesis 3, of Genesis 12, of all the covenants that God made with his people in the Old Testament. That is standing right here in front of you. It's an amazing thing. And look how they respond, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, sometimes people will say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God in the Gospels. Right here. This is it. This is maybe the clearest example of it. He's saying, before Abraham was, I was God. He created Abraham, brought him into existence, made the covenant promises to him, and then came as a human being in order to fulfill those covenant promises and bring salvation. He's claiming to be God and the fulfillment of the Old Testament here. Of course, the Jews understand what he's doing, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So the question for you today, in light of these three qualities, to determine your spiritual family identity is, what family do you belong to? It's a stark contrast. And how does your life reflect your family identity? So consider your actions, your loves, what drives you, what motivates you, what are you attracted to, what do you desire? Consider your actions, your loves, and then consider your response to Jesus. He claims to be God here. How does that sit with you? Do you believe him? Do you trust in him as the Savior who has come to redeem from sin and slavery to sin? Are you unsure and reject this claim? Pretending like you're using your rational mind when really it's driven by desire for darkness and for sin. So evaluate these things in light of this passage today. Let me just say before I pray that we started a bit late this morning, um, and so we're going to skip the last song. And as soon as I pray, Trevor's going to come up and dismiss us with a couple of announcements, and then uh, he'll pray to end the service, all right? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for this clear delineation between being a follower of the devil and of his family, and what that looks like, and being a follower of Christ, and part of your loving, truth-filled family. I pray that you would increase our desire for the truth and for your word, and that we would be people who remain and abide in your word because of what we've seen today. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.